Hey everyone, my name is Charlie Deaver. I'm the pastor here at Hope Church Knoxville, for those of you who don't know. And I was not expecting to be addressing you guys in this way tonight, on our first night in this beautiful building. I've been really looking forward to this. However, I am on a screen and, and you guys are there in person. And for those of you who don't know, that's because I, uh, me and my family, we contracted COVID just over two weeks ago. We're doing great. We've recovered. We've actually been released by the health department from quarantine. However, we just wanted to be abundantly cautious uh, with you all, making sure that we're not exposing you and your families to anything uh, before we come back together. So I plan on being with you all next time. Um, but I had this message uh, that I was just so excited to share and I wanted to, to share it with you all, even if I couldn't be with you in person. So um, I'm here on Friday afternoon recording this um, and praying for you guys um, as you listen to this and as you worship together and as you discuss on Sunday evening. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in to our passage for today. God, I just thank you so much for this community of people uh, that just loves one another and loves you so much that we are just so eager to come together and be together in person. Um, I pray that as uh, we all hear your words tonight, that as, as you speak through this passage and as hopefully, hopefully you speak through me, that you would form us more and more in the image of your son, that we would be people that would not be characterized by anxiety or fear um, or worry, but that we would be characterized by love and trust and faith and hope uh, that is found in your son, Jesus. So guide us in our time together. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Do not be anxious. Do not worry in some translations. That's what Jesus has to say to us tonight. Anxiety is defined in the dictionary as a feeling of worry or nervousness, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Now, if I was with you all tonight, I would, I would ask you to raise your hand if you've ever felt anxious. And I would imagine that every hand would go up. Uh, this is a, a, an incredibly common thing that we experience, anxiety and worry. Most people deal with anxiety on, on a fairly consistent basis. And for many of us, it can be really a debilitating lifelong struggle. Approximately 20% of people, one in five, struggle with anxiety uh, or struggle, suffer from an anxiety disorder, a diagnosed anxiety disorder. It's the most common uh, mental disorder that there is. And after years and years of research, doctors and psychologists have concluded that the last thing people suffering from anxiety need to be told is, don't be anxious or do not worry. We try that treatment a lot and it never works. This passage should come with a disclaimer that says, if you quote this to people dealing with anxiety, you could get smacked in the face. It usually doesn't help. 
But we do it all the time, especially uh, Christians. We say things like, you know, let go and let God, or God's got this, or God's in control. Or he's, you know, we quote scripture, we say, he's working all things out for your good. But the reality is, sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes uh, the, the very thing that you are worried about and anxious about comes to pass. Sure, there's times where, where our worries end up being all for nothing, but, but there are also times where, where the very thing we fear, the thing that is keeping us up at night, the thing that is stressing us out, that we can't think of anything else uh, about anything else, that very thing comes to be. You're worried about the upcoming test that, uh, so much that you can't focus on studying or sleep the night before. The next day comes and, and you fail the test. You're anxious about an upcoming job interview. You know, you make it uh, through the interview and then they inform you that they're going to go hire someone else. You're worried that your marriage is going to fall apart. You feel like no matter what you do, things keep getting worse and worse. Sure enough, your spouse one day tells you that they want to split up. You're constantly anxious about your kids. As they get older, no matter what you do, you know you can't protect them. You pray to God to take away your anxiety and protect your children. Then you get a call one night that your child has been in a terrible car accident. There are people in this world who do not have clothes uh, for their backs or a roof over their head. There are people who are right now worried about the next meal that they will eat who will die of starvation before they get to eat it. Nine million people in the world die from hunger every year. And even worse, three million of those people are children under the age of five. How could we possibly look at our world, look at people that are starving or, or thirsting or, or can't clothe themselves and their children or put a house a roof over their head, how can we look at that and possibly say, do not be anxious, do not worry? But we read this passage and it seems like that is exactly what Jesus did. So what's going on here? Let, well, let's um, take a moment and imagine the scene surrounding the passage. We always want to do this. When we, when we look at a passage, we want to think, what's going on behind the scenes? What's happening behind these words? Jesus isn't speaking these words to us right now. He spoke this to a group of people at a particular time, and we want to, to the best of our abilities, understand that. You know, we spent the last couple of months in this portion of the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. It's the longest recorded collection of Jesus' teachings in the Bible. This large crowd of people have gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. And one of the first things we talked about when we dove into the Sermon on the Mount is, was who was in the crowds? Who made up the crowd of people that was listening to Jesus? Who was he speaking to? And we learned that, that just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was going around healing the sick and the disabled, sharing meals with the poor and the sinners, as they were called by the religious elites. And as word of Jesus spread, these droves of people, masses of people came to see him, to listen to him teach, to be healed by him, to be accepted by him, 
the poor, the insignificant, the outcast and the lonely, the sick and the disabled. These were the types of people who made up the crowds. <clears throat> and you have to imagine that there were people in that crowd, many people in that crowd, who were worried about uh, how they would possibly get their next meal. People who had nothing but the tattered rags that covered their backs. People who were starving, who were thirsty, who were naked. And you have to assume, I believe, that some of those people, people who heard Jesus' words and believed what he said, eventually died from hunger. So what is Jesus saying? I mean, how could he look out at this crowd, see a bunch of poor, desperate, anxious, starving people, and say, do not be anxious? As I see it, we, we have two possibilities here. Either Jesus is just out of touch with the reality of this world, or we are misunderstanding this passage. And spoiler alert, it's, it's the latter. We're misunderstanding this passage. So let's, let's try to understand this passage. Jesus is not out of touch with the sufferings of the people in the crowd, and he's not oblivious to the suffering and challenges and, and stuff that you face that's causing your anxiety today. So what is he talking about? Well, let's dive in. Verse 25 <clears throat> says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, Jesus is not saying that life doesn't require food. Okay, he, he knows uh, full well that if we go long enough without food or water, we will die. He is saying that life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. In other words, just because you have those things doesn't mean you are living life. You know, Jesus says something to this respect uh, multiple times throughout his ministry, that we were not created to live a life of survival. We were created to live a life of meaning, a life with purpose. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. And Jesus offers this illustration, starting in verse 26. He says, and I would imagine he's speaking to this crowd, and there's birds flying overhead. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. He points to the fields that the people are sitting in. How they grow, they, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? So what in the world is Jesus getting at here? I mean, at first glance, it seems like Jesus' logic is this. And see if you, you follow this. Don't worry about your most fundamental needs in life. Because just as God provides for the animals and the plants of the world, God will also provide for you because you are more valuable than the animals and the plants. 
it seems like Jesus is painting this idealistic picture of the world as a place of abundance, where there is more than enough for every living being to get what he, she, or it needs to survive. I mean, think about this illustration for a moment. How does God provide food for sparrows or birds? How does he clothe grass or lilies? It's not through some extravagant miracle, but through just the natural order of the world, how the world works. If things go as they should in the world, the birds will continue to find berries, bugs, and fruit to eat. And, if, and God set up this world to continually produce more and more. And whether you believe in God or not, if you look at the world, it seems as though the default is abundance. For example, if you take like a closed uh, ecosystem, untouched by, by any external uh, you know, things like humans or, or some invasive species, a rainforest, for example, or a coral reef. When those spaces are left to run their natural course, they thrive, they flourish. It's not until we get involved that things start to go downhill. The reason we have to do things like conservation and restoration of, of natural ecosystems is only because we messed it up in the first place. We live in a world where the default is abundance. And it seems that Jesus views the world in this way. Don't worry about what you will eat because just as God provides for all the animals and the plants through the natural workings of creation, he will also provide for you. However, we know that things don't always work out this way. The crowd that Jesus is speaking to knows that their lives aren't working out this way. And Jesus knows that the world doesn't always work out this way. So why? I mean, why do we find ourselves in a world that seems to have this natural propensity towards abundance, yet so often there is not enough for many to have their most basic needs met? And why is Jesus seeming to ignore that tension in this particular message? Or I'm sorry, in this particular passage? Well, if you were to turn back to the first couple pages of your Bible uh, in the book of Genesis, you would read about this place called the Garden of Eden. It's on the first two pages of, of the Bible. This place, uh, this is the place that God, you know, he created the whole world and everything in it, but then he chose to dwell, to live with the people that he created in this garden, this physical space. It was a beautiful garden where God placed every plant, it says in scripture, every plant that is good for eating existed in this garden. In Genesis 1.11, God says, you know, let the earth uh, sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. I mean, think about this. God created a world that uh, would, would just multiply. Everything would multiply. We, we got into gardening this summer as a family in our backyard, and it didn't go uh, well. We lost most of the things that we planted. However, our peppers turned out really good. And, you know, I'm still, uh, last week I 
tore out all our pepper plants and they were still producing. I mean, I was pulling 20 peppers a day. Um, each of these plants produced, you know, anywhere from, from 15 to, to 25 peppers in total. And each pepper had hundreds of seeds inside of it. Okay, so, so each seed being able to grow an entire new pepper plant that would produce, you know, 20 to 30 more peppers and with each with hundreds of seeds in it. And, you know, God says to, to all the living creatures, I mean, he set this up for multiplication. He says to the animals and, and the people, you know, be fruitful and multiply. God created a world that was defaulted for abundance. As it just naturally progressed forward, there'd be more and more and there'd be enough. This garden that God created, that, that he placed humans in to, to take care of and to take pleasure in it, it was a place of abundance, a place that grew, multiplied, and produced more and more as God had created it to do. But something has gone wrong. The world that we live in is not like this garden that we see in Genesis. You know, one of my favorite <clears throat> Bible scholars, his name is Tim Mackey. He illustrates this tension uh, in this way. He says, the world is, is like, he describes the world like a big banquet. And God is this incredibly generous host who has provided an abundance of food and drink for, for everyone that comes. It's more than enough for anyone that could possibly come to this banquet. So we show up to the banquet and, and it's great. There's, there's so much food, more food than we could possibly know what to do with. Uh, but, but as the party goes on, a handful of people get this idea in their heads, a false idea that what the host has provided is not enough or what the host has provided will eventually run out. So what do they do? They, they decide to take more than they need. They, they decide to store up for a day when the food would run out. So they, they go to the, the party, to the table, and they, they collect all this food, as much food as they could possibly carry, and they go into a, another room and they lock the door. They leave the banquet with, with everything they can uh, possibly carry. Well, others at the party see this happening, and they begin to worry. They, they think, you know, if these people start taking more than they need, then there will be less for me. And if enough people take from the banquet, there will eventually be nothing left. So they get this false idea in their head, too, that, that the host has not provided enough, so I better store up, too. And this group of people takes as much as they can possibly carry, and they go into another room and lock the door. Meanwhile, the people at the party who have been just enjoying the banquet, taking what they need, they look around, and they notice that, you know, most of the food is gone. They grow anxious, seeing that this banquet of abundance has now become a desert of scarcity. They begin to fight over what's left, no longer enjoying the beauty of the banquet and the generosity of the host, but concerned only with their own survival. The garden of abundance has become a desert of scarcity. The world that God created to be good 
where everyone would have more than enough has become a world where so many are struggling to get by. Instead of peace and security, we live with constant anxiety, worried that even if we have enough for today, we may not have enough tomorrow. We live in fear of scarcity, fear that we will never have enough or what we do have will someday not be enough. So we take more. We store up treasures on earth, as David talked about last week. And for some, the very thing that we fear becomes a reality. We live in a world of scarcity. So what do we do? How do we or or, or can we return to the world of abundance as God created it to be? Well, Jesus doesn't just say, don't be anxious, and that's that. You know, he, he tells us to do something else. What does he tell us to do? Well, well, verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And here is the key to what Jesus is saying. You know, this isn't some some psychological teaching. This isn't some positive self-talk approach to your anxiety. Jesus is not saying, just try really hard not to be anxious or, or, you know, uh, uh, don't think about the things you don't have. Just constantly tell yourself you do have enough and you will be able to put food on the table. Um, That's not what Jesus is saying, and that doesn't work. What he is saying is, First, seek God's kingdom. Now, a couple months ago, when we uh, started in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about how this sermon, this collection of teachings, is is not so much a, a list of rules or a collection of moralistic teachings, but instead it's a portrait of what life is like in the kingdom of God. When God is in charge and people are living under his rule, This is what life looks like. I shared this quote a couple weeks ago, and I think it's it's helpful for us again today, uh, by Stanley Hauerwas. He's an author and theologian. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. So this passage is part of that larger portrait of life in the kingdom of God. In other words, when we seek the kingdom of God, we experience this reality that Jesus is describing here. We experience a world of abundance where we don't need to be anxious about our most basic needs because God has set up a world in which he provides for those needs. Jesus is not saying that we must earn God's provision. Okay, that's, that's very important. He, he doesn't say seek God's kingdom and do righteousness. He says seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, what does it mean to, to seek God's righteousness? Well, the, the Greek term that we translate here as righteousness, it's pronounced uh, dikaiosune. You don't need to know that. But, but what's important to know is that the, the Greek 
term for righteousness has a much broader meaning than what I think comes to our minds when we uh, read, when we see righteousness in, in English. I don't know about you, but when I read, when I hear righteousness, when I read the term righteousness, what immediately comes to my mind is um, I, I begin to think in terms of morality or, or behavior, adherence to a list of, of ethical standards or rules. You know, I think mostly on an internal level, either you are as a person righteous or you are not righteous. But Dekayasune is, is much broader than that. It includes justice on a communal level. It's, it's about wholeness, restoring of relationships and communities. It, it uh, brings up images of peace. Shalom is the, is the Hebrew term that, that they would use that just refers to this um, overarching universal sense of, of wholeness and completeness. Righteousness is, is about uh, taking the things that are not the way they're supposed to be and making them right. Ultimately taking a world that is not the way it's supposed to be and making it right. So to seek God's righteousness means to seek spaces and realities where things are as God intended them to be, where things are right. Or noticing spaces and, and realities and situations where things are not as, tended, as God intended them to be and working towards a, a, a righteousness of that space. It goes hand in hand with seeking God's kingdom. If we seek out God's rule and reign in the world, places where he's in charge, uh, and, and in our lives, we will see him breaking into the brokenness of this world, restoring things to the way they were intended to be, and restoring our lives to the way he intended them to be. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, as Jesus says. So how do we respond to this passage? Well, two things I, I want us to take away from our time together. Number one, we live, uh, we respond to this passage by living in expectant hope for the kingdom that is coming. We live in expectant hope for the kingdom that is coming. And two, we live to reveal the kingdom that is already here. So living in, in hope, uh, expectant hope for the kingdom that is coming, what, what's coming? What does that look like? Well, we, we looked at the first couple pages of our Bible. And now I want us to, to take a look at the last couple pages of our Bible. Just as God tells us of a world of abundance that he created, he also tells us of the world of abundance that he will one day re return us to. Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to have it up on the screen here. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And if you want to close your eyes and imagine this, you can. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the, for the healing of the nations. We need to understand that God's plan is not for our souls to, to just escape this world, floating around in some spiritual realm. His plan is to restore this world to make it a new world where heaven and earth are one, where God and man are together physically. It is a world of abundance, a world where there will be no more death, no more tears, no more pain, no more pandemic, keeping us from holding one another close and seeing one another's faces. A world where there'll be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more anxiety. This is not some spiritual world where we are disembodied souls floating around. This is a physical world where we have souls and bodies. This is a world like the world God created in the beginning. This is a world that, I mean, you can imagine this. It takes all the best parts of the world that we live in today and the lives that we have now, and it makes them so much better. This is the kingdom of God that is coming. This is the world that we are headed for. But just as we live in expectant hope for the kingdom that is coming, Jesus also wants us to live lives that reveal the kingdom that is already here. Jesus said that he came to bring the kingdom of God. He didn't say that the kingdom of God was this only this future reality, but that the kingdom of God had already come in him. We see this in his life where he heals people of sickness and disabilities, where he spends time with and restores the dignity of people who were worthless in the eyes of the world. He casts out evil that had consumed people. Wherever Jesus went, evidence of the kingdom of God overpowered the brokenness of the world. But when Jesus left this world physically, the spread of the kingdom did not stop. He sent out his followers together to establish kingdom communities 
all over the world to reveal God's kingdom to everyone that they meet, living together like God is in charge. So what does it look like for a community of people to live uh, in this world, a world of pain, brokenness, and scarcity, but at the same time to live fully in God's kingdom? Well, that's, that's what the whole New Testament is all about. Communities trying to figure that out. And, and while they don't always get it right, we read stories of communities, house churches, that share everything they have, that build one another up every single day, that love one another fully. Communities that look for ways to bless and serve the world around them. You see numbers and numbers of people joining these communities because for the first time ever, people feel loved and cared for and valuable. They feel Jesus through these communities. In kingdom communities, in Jesus communities, you don't have to be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear because God has surrounded you with a community of people who love you as they love themselves, meaning they will give you food to eat or they will give you their clothes to wear. They will do anything for you because of what God has done for them. And you being a part of that sort of community will have the privilege of being used by God to bless someone else in the same way. In kingdom communities, people don't hoard and store up as much as they can. They don't lock themselves in another room in the banquet. They come out of those private rooms. They bring back the things that they had, had gathered and stored up to the party, and, and they join the generous host who has provided abundantly for everyone there, and they enjoy the party. If you want to address your anxiety, seek the kingdom of God. And if you want to seek the kingdom of God, surround yourself with a community of people who love Jesus and love one another. Now, I'm not saying your anxiety will suddenly disappear or, or will never return. I, I understand that that is a deep and complex struggle for so many, and I want to be sensitive to that. But we have to realize that there will be a day when God uh, restores all of creation to, to the way he made it to be, where there will be no anxiety, where that fear or that depression or, or anxiety that consumes you will be gone. There will be no more. And, and, but we've been living our whole lives in this world of, of scarcity, believing that there is not enough. And for our entire lives, that world has shaped us and shaped our minds instead of being shaped by God's kingdom. And you know, we continue to be shaped by the brokenness and the lies of this world instead of God. I mean, we live every day in it. And, and for many of us, it's going to take a long journey of reshaping our minds within a kingdom community. But you will not be on that journey alone. When you surround yourself with a community of people who are living out the reality of God's kingdom, a community of love, generosity, compassion, vulnerability, that community will be right by your side, lifting you up and carrying you forward. When you're struggling, when you're hurting, 
when that anxiety creeps in, and when you can't see God through the pain, that community will help you see and experience God's kingdom. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for uh, your word, Father, that you um, just have so much to say to us through it. Every time we open it, Lord, I pray that um, we would seek you every single day of our lives and seek your truth and your wisdom through your word. I pray that we would surround ourselves with communities of people who love you and love one another that we would not have to worry about our most basic needs because, or, or anything because we would be cared for by, by kingdom communities, by Jesus-centered communities. I pray that for anyone in this room who doesn't have that, regardless of, of where they're at uh, in their journey with you, God, but if they don't have a community like that, I pray that they would seek that out. I pray that they would find people who, who love them and care for them and, and want to, to just embrace them in a kingdom community. I pray that you're with us as we worship together tonight, God. Guide us in our time of worship. I pray that we meet you right now in a really special way. In Jesus' name, amen.